In our current series, we're looking at Isaiah's prophecies of the Messiah found in Isaiah 53, and we're comparing them to their fulfillment, their very specific, complete fulfillment in the New Testament. And when we do that, we see proof. We see proof that God keeps His promises, that He is a promise-keeping God. We see proof that Jesus is exactly the person He was prophesied to be, and that He did exactly what God promised He would do. And since God was true to His Word on all of that, He can be trusted with everything else. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You are the God who keeps His promises. I thank You that You have spoken about our need for a Savior from the very beginning of Your Word. And all the way through, we see pictures and patterns and hints and directions that there is a coming One. And then, as the author of Hebrews says, after long ago speaking through prophets and in various ways at various times, you spoke finally and fully, perfectly, completely in and through the person of your Son. Your promise was kept. Truly, all of your good promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Help us to see that in new ways today. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be refreshed. But I also pray, Father, that we would all be in awe, amazed, astounded, and even broken as we see what Your Son came to do, what it was prophesied that He would endure and go through for us, and as we look at its awesome and awful fulfillment, may we not be the same. In Jesus' name and for His name, I pray, amen. Raise your hand if you have ever driven past a stop sign or through a red light. Come on, let me see. Yep. Raise your hand if you've ever driven over the speed limit or if you've ever texted while driving. Yep. You notice my hand is not up? That's because I'm gripping the podium. Yep. If you are over 16 and you didn't raise your hand, everyone in the room knows you're lying. So, all of us have done those things and, and more, I'm sure. Uh, what if we had to pay a $200 fine every single time we did those things or we broke any traffic law? That would be a pretty high uh, toll, right? Uh, in fact, we would all, I'm sure, be incapable of paying that price. It would be way too high for, <laughs> for all of us. Uh, I don't think any of us would be able to say, oh yeah, I do it so, so rarely, that would be no problem. No, no, not at all. We, we would all be broke completely, more broke than we already are. Uh, that, that's just the fact of, of the reality of our situation uh, as human beings. And you know, the Bible teaches that every time we cross 
the moral line, uh, the holy line that God himself established as our creator and as the only perfect lawgiver, that when we cross his line, his standards, when we break that, there has to be a price paid. Has to be. Because he's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. And as such, there is a price that must be paid whenever his standards are broken. Every time we lie, or every time we embellish the truth, every time we allow envy or resentment into our hearts and our minds, every time we react in unrighteous anger, which is almost all the time we react in anger, it's very rare that we react in true righteous anger, every time we think lustful thoughts of any kind, every time we, you fill in the blank, you get the picture, every time we cross the moral line in any way, a price is required. But the price isn't financial in nature, and the punishment isn't a fine goes far beyond that, far deeper. Romans 6.23, the first part of that verse says, For the wages of sin is death. A wage is something you get for what you do, right? You work a job, you earn a wage. And you expect that your wage matches the work you do. You, You expect to be fairly given the wage for the work you've put in, right? Well, all of us from Adam and Eve on starting off as a little baby, like the the little precious ones that we just dedicated at the beginning of this service, we're born into working sin. We're born doing the work of sin. And so it's fair that we get a wage for that work. And we just heard it. The Bible says the wage of sin, the payment for sin is death. The price of our sin and rebellion from birth all the way through the rest of our life, the price of our sin and rebellion against a holy and just God is separation from that God forever in eternal death. That's the price. That's the penalty. That's the fair wage for the sin that we all inherited by nature and then choose to do. But, but, God doesn't desire that to be our end. So, He did what only He could do to provide an alternative. To provide a way of escaping that fate. Romans 6.23, the last part of that verse, a beautiful contrast to that very weighty statement at the beginning of the verse, says this, last part of Romans 6.23, but the gift, something you don't earn or work for, something you're given free, but the gift of God is eternal life. Not eternal death, which is the payment for sin. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that good news? You see, Jesus is the sinner's 
substitute. That's what he is, the sinner's substitute. As we started this series last week, we talked about the fact that he is the revealed but rejected Redeemer. Today we're going to be talking about the fact that he is the sinner's substitute. And we're going to look first, our main passage is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. I invite you to look at that with me. Go ahead and bring that up or turn in your Bible to Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. And Isaiah writing there of the sinner's substitute, of the promised Messiah of Jesus, says this in verse 4, Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Despite the truth of what we saw last week, in the way He was despised and rejected. He came to His own, we looked at. John 1, He came to His own, His own creation, His own people, but His own people rejected Him, did not receive Him. He was despised and rejected. Yet, look at this, surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. And how did, how did His people how was it prophesied that his people would respond and how, how by connection all of humanity would respond? It says this, Yet we, and this is Isaiah writing as a Jewish person prophesying specifically of his own people, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. In other words, the mindset would be instead of us being punished by God fairly, rightly, instead of us being stricken by Him and afflicted like we should be, like we all deserve, instead of recognizing that it's Him coming to be the substitute for all of that, the mindset is, oh, He's the one fairly punished by God. He's the one that deserves that. He's the one that God is striking down and afflicting. The attitude would be, He's getting what He deserves rather than understanding He's taking what we deserve. Verse 5, He continues, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. What are the odds? What are the odds that anybody would do any of these things for you and for me? What are the odds that any religion's God, false God, would do anything like what the Word of God shows that the eternal Word did for us? What are the odds that any person in any position and power would leave their position and their power and their privilege and come and rescue rebels by taking their punishment in those rebels' place? What are the odds? They're pretty high, aren't they? Pretty astronomical. But that's exactly what our substitute our Savior did for us. He came to those in rebellion against Him. He came to those deserving the sentence of death, deserving being crushed for iniquity. 
and he took our place in our stead. What judge would ever pass sentence on a criminal that deserved sentence passed? The gavel was hammered. And then what, what judge would leave the dais and come down and hold out his hands to be arrested and taken away for the punishment that he had just passed down on the criminal before him? No judge would ever do that. We're never going to hear that being done in the news. But church, my friends, that is exactly what Jesus did for all of us. Because the Bible clearly says that not only is He the Savior of man, He's also the judge of all mankind. And what we're going to see in the New Testament fulfillment in just a minute It's not as if it were some cosmic child abuse like has been wrongly and unfairly leveled against God. So many times critics of the Gospel will say, how can someone believe in this message? This is cosmic child abuse. If if God the Father is the Father of Jesus, and yet He allowed His Son to go through what He did, and, and He willfully put all of this on Jesus, that's just divine and cosmic child abuse. No, no it's not. Because Jesus, while being separate from the Father, is one in nature with the Father, one in will, and one in viewing sin the way the Father does. That means because Jesus is God, as the Father is God, He can't tolerate sin any less than the Father. And so Him bearing the full weight of our sin, bearing the full wrath of His Father on sin, was something He had to have done as well. Something He willfully accepted because He had to accept it because He was also God. It was something that He absolutely needed to see happen and He absolutely needed to see done. And so that's part of why He willingly accepted it. The other part was because despite all the odds, he loved his creation that much. He loved our souls to death. Loved our souls to death. He did it out of justice, being the judge of all mankind. But because he loved the criminal, he took his own sentence. He bore his own right and fitting penalty that he gave out. When it says at the end of verse 5 that by his wounds we are healed, you need to understand that goes far beyond something as superficial and limited and temporary as physical healing. No matter how well we might be physically healed here in this life and, and on earth as God graciously does choose to heal, no matter what, we still end this life and our experience in this life in death. So even healing, as great as it is, it's still temporary. And when it says here that it is by His wounds, our substitute, our Savior, that we are healed, Isaiah is not talking about physical, external healing. He's talking about the healing of sin's dominance in and over our lives. That's the healing that Jesus secured by giving His life on the cross. See, His healing is not just skin deep. It goes down to the very soul. 
to the deepest need we all have to be rescued and freed from sin's dominance, its crushing weight on our lives. That's what we have been healed from by the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. Hallelujah for that. Hallelujah. Well, let's let's now look at the New Testament fulfillment of what was so clearly and, and in such detail prophesied by Isaiah in these verses. Let's consider the New Testament fulfillment. Because, of course, as good and powerful as those words and that prophecy is, uh, it's only so good as much as it's fulfilled. Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15. Please look at that with me. Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15. It's where we're going to see the first example and really the most significant example of the New Testament fulfillment of what we just heard from Isaiah's prophecy. And please just pay really close attention. I mean, just zoom in to what is being said in these couple of passages that we look at because they are so clearly, directly, just undeniably the fulfillment of what Isaiah said in verse 4 and 5 of of chapter 53. Mark 15 Verses 6 through 15. Verse 6, Mark writes this At the festival, and some of your translations might say at the feast, this is the Passover festival, and specifically it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, that was taking place as, as this is being described and as this unfolds. So at the festival, Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, the governor, used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. There was a great insurrection against Rome, and and he had uh, murdered several different people along with another uh, group of zealots, and he was in prison for that murder, awaiting execution. Verse 8 says this, The crowd came up, and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Referring to Jesus. For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. He knew it was just because they were jealous of his popularity among the people. And he and the Jewish leaders didn't really have a whole lot of affection for one another. So he saw this as a way of kind of giving them a jab, you know, releasing the one they wanted executed. Verse 11, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And this is very ironic, very ironic, considering the one they gave to Pilate, Jesus, had come to free them from their prison of sin and to forgive their rebellion against him. Isn't that ironic? Sadly. Ironic. What do you want me to do with the one they called the king of the Jews? He, he asked them. Verse 12, Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? All right, so if you want Barabbas released to you, you don't want Jesus who claimed to be your king, you don't want him released, what do you want me to do with him? Verse 13, again they shouted, crucify him! which is a direct fulfillment 
Now verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53. In verse 14, Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? In other words, what has he done so, so bad that it's, it's worthy of this kind of punishment? I mean, even the Romans saved and reserved crucifixion for the worst of the worst. It was absolutely horrible even in their own eyes. So much so that a Roman citizen would not be crucified. They would reserve that for someone that wasn't even Roman. Just too much for them. Why? What has he done wrong? Worthy of that? Deserving of this kind of death? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! In verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, i.e. being afraid of the crowd, not wanting a revolt, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. It's amazing that Mark just has this brief statement and having Jesus flogged. What was wrapped up in that statement and in that action goes far beyond just a statement as simple as that. This, by the way, that action was a direct fulfillment again of, of the second part of Isaiah 53.5, by stripes we're healed. It's a direct reference to the act of flogging, the scourging that Jesus received. That was with what was called a cat of nine tails. Had a, a handle that the torturer would hold, and it had strips of leather coming out of it with pieces of glass, broken bone, any sort of metallic piece, barbs woven into the strips of leather. And the victim was on his knees. His hands would be out in front of him, tied to a post, so that the back would be arched. And the torturer would stand far enough away to provide an arc so that when the strips with those barbs landed on the victim, it wasn't like, don't think of, a, of just a, a whip that was a snap and it came off. You know, like when you used to do when you were little at the pool, and you had your wet towel and you'd wind them up and you'd snap each other, right? It would be that flick and it would hurt, but that would be it. It was just this touch of the skin, and then come off. I guess that was a guy thing. We're weird. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what was done. That's not what this was. This was when the arc of the strip of leather would land on the victim's back. It would latch. It would embed into the back of the victim. And so when they would pull back the cat of nine tails, it would pull back the back of the victim from them. So that with each lash, literal strips and ribbons of the back of the victim would come off with the cat of nine tails. If you've ever seen the movie The Passion, The Passion of the Christ, it does, unfortunately, 
it does a very good job of depicting that scene. It's, it's just almost too much to watch. And even that doesn't do it justice. It doesn't even come close to what actually would, would have been the case in that situation of what Jesus went through. Many people died right there and didn't even make it to the cross because of the amount of torture, the blood loss. That's what it means when it says, after having Jesus flogged. That's what he went through before going to the cross. This is what he went through when, right after that, they put cloth on his flailed open raw back and then ripped off again. This is what happened before the weight of the beam that he carried for his cross was placed on his back and on his shoulders. So after that, he handed him over to be crucified. Looking ahead, still in seeing the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied, John chapter 19, we're fast-forwarding through the events of Jesus being on the cross, his time there, his thirsting, his crying out, his declaration of the fact that it is finished, all of the the penalty and the the debt of sin that's on our account, Jesus paying it and saying, to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. That's all happened. So verse 31 through 34 is the the end of Christ suffering as as it happened. We we come to this scene. John nineteen, thirty one through thirty four. Verse thirty one of John nineteen says this Since it was the preparation day related to the Passover, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So in other words, it would quicken, it would speed up their death because the death on the cross was always a death of suffocation and breaking their legs would keep them from pushing on the cross to get up to catch a breath before they came down again and the suffocation started again and again. And that was the process. You'd push up to get a breath you go down again when you couldn't hold yourself up any longer. Sometimes people lasted a week on the cross in that way. So they said, break the legs so that that process speeds up. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one, the criminals that were on either side of Jesus who had been crucified with him. Verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. That is another fulfillment. We didn't look at that, and it's elsewhere in the Old Testament that says, not one of my bones were broken. I counted all of my bones. That was another direct fulfillment of Messianic prophecy related to his time on the cross. So they didn't break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. Verse 34 but one of the soldiers pierced his side. And we just read that a few moments ago, right? He was pierced for us. That's another direct fulfillment, a part of Isaiah 53, 5. 
One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Blood and water came out. That detail right there points to something absolutely, absolutely amazing. That detail points to the fact that our sin broke our Savior's heart. Our sin broke our Savior's heart. Literally. Literally. What happened here is is a, a medical fact. It's something medically verified. Our heart has a pericardium. It's something called a pericardium, and it's a thin membrane. And it covers the heart, surrounds the heart. Under intense stress or affliction physically, it fills with a clear fluid, and that process is called pericardial effusion. So under extreme intense stress or duress, it, it, the heart, the, the sac, that membrane, it, it swells and it fills with a clear fluid. And so, certainly, considering the stress that Jesus endured, the physical stress, the emotional stress, the mental stress, all of it combined, all that he had, had experienced and, and underwent all the way up to the moment of his death, certainly it stands to reason that this would have happened, this pericardial effusion. When the spear, the lance, pierced his side, that's exactly what the soldier was intending to do, to, to pierce between the rib cage into the heart to make sure he was truly dead. And so when John says that at once blood and water came out, this is the phenomenon that would have occurred. That spear would have pierced into the heart and the pericardium fluid would have been released along with the blood from the heart. So it would have come out together. So it's another just incredible eyewitness detail that's just undeniable that it took place. And it points to that greater reality that our sin broke our Savior's heart. And that He loved our heart to death. What are the odds? What are the odds that anyone other than Jesus would do that for you and for me? Can you think of anybody? I can't. I can't think of anybody that would do that for me. And who who would you be willing to do that for? What are the odds? Let's look back at God's Word. And I want to draw your attention to Colossians 1.19-20. through 20. And these next two passages that we look at are the result of all that we just looked at. All that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, all that we just read of the fulfillment of what he prophesied in Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel, those events, the the actions that he actually underwent, the direct fulfillment, here's what that achieved. Here's the results of that. And this too is what Isaiah prophesied and pointed to clearly. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. The Apostle Paul there writes this. 
God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. That's speaking of Jesus bodily, physically on earth. That the Father was pleased to have all of His fullness, the full aspect of His divinity, His deity, dwelling bodily in Jesus. He was pleased for that to happen. And through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile, to make right everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How did He do it? Look at what it says in verse 20 there. By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. What was the last part of Isaiah 53.5? What did it say? It says, the punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And here's what Paul says there, right in Colossians 1, 19-20, in verse 20, he did this, he reconciled everything to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. What are the odds? 1 Peter 2, 24 says this. 1 Peter 2, 24. Speaking of Jesus he himself bore, bore our sins, put, took on and, and carried our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. That we, the ones he did that for, might die to sin. You see the connection there as he is bearing our sins in his body on the tree, dying there on the cross, as he bore our sins to death. Peter says he, he did that that we might die to sin as he is dying for sin. Jesus died for our sin that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why? By his wounds you have been healed. That's why. Because it is his wounds there on the cross. And again, before the cross, like we looked at, the scourging, the flogging that he endured before the cross. By his wounds, or some translations say by his stripes, which is a complete picture of the act of scourging, you have been healed. And just like at the end of Isaiah 53, 5, as I said earlier, this is not physical, skin, flesh-type healing. This is the healing of the terminal condition of our sinful nature and our helplessness against it. We're all born terminally ill. We're all born dying under the weight of sin. But Jesus' death made a way out of that. Made it possible to not succumb to that death. By His wounds, you have been healed. What all of this together, taking all of it together, teaches us this fact. Please, everybody hear me on this. Jesus is every sinner's perfect substitute. Every sinner's perfect substitute. Jesus alone, uniquely, exclusively, entirely, is every sinner's perfect substitute. That means there's no one who can out-sin what Jesus did for them. No sin is too great. There's no one's 
sin weight that was too much for him to bear on the cross. He took it all. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. He took our sin and gave us His righteousness. There was a divine exchange that happened at the cross. Picture, just see in your mind, Jesus stretched out on that cross, arms wide. And in those arms, He took both things and there was an exchange that took place in His person and in His work where He got our sin, we got His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place by taking our punishment. And He gave us His peace with the Father. He took our place by taking our punishment, all that separated us from the Father, and He gave us in exchange, unfairly, totally undeservingly, He gave us His peace with His Father. What are the odds? What are the odds? They're too high to calculate that anyone other than Jesus would do that. And the question with all of this, when it all comes down, when we consider these things and we we come face to face with all this reality, the question that is left is this. How will we respond? How will we respond to all of that, to Him? There's only one response that makes any sense in light of all of this. It's what Paul said in Romans 12.1. He said, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in other words, in in view of all of that, in view of all that Jesus, the perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God and judge of all mankind, considering what He did to take the penalty that He rightly as judge should have placed on all of us and sentenced us to. Instead, He took it in our place, bore the full weight of it all. In view of the mercies of God, Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies, your whole self, as a living sacrifice, as He presented Himself as our sacrifice. We present ourselves as a living, a constant, just continual, perpetual sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship, or other translations very accurately say, your reasonable service. In light of all of that, that's just reasonable that we would do that. That's the only response that makes sense. How will you respond? How have you responded? May we all respond in the way that Paul urged us to do in view of God's mercies on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And thank You you for giving us Your eternal Word, Jesus, the Word who became flesh, all so that He would give that flesh to the scourges, to the flogging, 
and then ultimately to the cross. Where his flesh was torn, where his heart was broken, all because of our sin, because of our need for rescue and from healing from that sin that no one other than Jesus could provide. Thank you for what we have been reminded of today. May it result in what Paul urged us all to do in response, which is to give all of ourselves to you as a living, constant sacrifice in light of the sacrifice of your Son. And if there's anyone here who has not yet received the work of Jesus on their behalf, may today, right now, be the moment where they turn to you and say, Yes, I need that. I need what Jesus did on the cross. I want Him to rescue me from sin. I want Him to save me from sin. I look to Him. Please save me. May that be the cry of their heart if they have not already done so. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.